Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, at least here in the East Coast of the United States. You're tuned into another Left Lens live stream. Please let me know how I sound in the chat if there are any issues. Make sure you're liking the stream. We have a very special guest today. She'll be with us uh, for about 30 minutes, and I'll be with you probably for about 90. Uh, but uh, it's Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She's someone who has been very inspirational for my own work, uh, my own book on American exceptionalism with Roberto Cervant, was heavily influenced by her work on indigenous people's history. Uh, she's a professor, an activist, a writer. She has just authored a new book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Exclusion and Erasure. That is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She is here right now. I'm going to add her. Hello. Nice Hi. to see you today. Hi, Danny. Nice to be here. Hi. Good. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for making the time. Let's just get right to it. So, I mean... What is happening on the U.S.-Mexico border, the migration crisis that the U.S. has, has really facilitated over the course of many decades, uh, has recently been spoken about in the news with the, uh, with the uh, uh, deaths that were found in Texas, East Texas, of now 53 migrants from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Uh, what's, uh, uh, and so you've written this book about the the way that immigration is talked about and you focus a lot on indigenous people's history and the, their struggle for self-determination but you also talk about this broader history of how immigration has been spoken about over the course of u.s history and in particular this uh, narrative that the u.s is a nation of immigrants and i could you speak to that because i feel like especially among liberals democrats people who tend to think of themselves on the left they they promote this as sort of a way of talking about inclusion, but there's a lot of, I think, problems to it. And I've certainly grown frustrated with it, just given the overall situation that we're in. So could you talk about some of that history? Uh, you, you have a, a rich history that you go over to to uh, sort of critique this. And, and then we can go from there, just given the situation around immigration. Uh, in the United States. So again, thanks for coming and I'll just turn it over to you. Yeah, um, well, first of all, nation of immigrants idea or words or phrase is uh, comparatively new, you know, in US history. It was created uh, by John F. Kennedy in 1958 when he was a, um, a senator and preparing to run for president. And he had a, um, I think it was really a part of his campaign is to naturalize um, immigrants because his family were immigrants, Irish immigrants, very well to do, but still it was a, it was a um, unheard of that, uh, you know, anyone who was a first generation uh, a recent immigrant or first generation immigrant would ever be president, least of all a Catholic. So um, he setting up this, this idea, uh, he even had to contort into making Native Americans the first immigrants um, and uh, doubting that actually 
they were. Um, maybe the Irish were back in the days. I mean, there's a lot of mythology um, in the concept, but it, it really worked in a way. Um, the media uh, really picked it up as a, you know, he wrote a little book, uh, 100 pages or so, laying out his, um, the horrors of, uh, you know, the starving refugees coming from Ireland and how they were taken in and <clears throat> made things better, uh, became, you know, uh, really a part of the country, an important part of the country. And he didn't talk much about any, uh, you know, Eastern Europe or Italians or anything else. So it was pretty much the, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, just a, a propaganda piece. But the concept itself took off. And I think everyone picked it up, uh, Italian immigrants or second generation and, uh, um, and others, uh, Eastern Europeans who maybe felt marginalized, it did give a sense of inclusion. Um, so, you know, he had, he won the presidency really based very, you know, it was a very close race. <clears throat> and I think he, he would have, had he been Anglo-Saxon and Protestant, the, and the personality was, and as smart as he was, he would have won by a huge margin. But <clears throat> so it really started as a propaganda piece and became, you know, as the Democrats um, moved away from being the conservatives, um, that is based in the South and segregationists, with him and with Lyndon Johnson, um, they picked this up. As, as the, um, uh, as the um, definition of the United States. Well, the main problem with it, and it's taught, you know, almost every uh, history textbook in schools today even start with, um, sometimes they're even called the nation of immigrants, quite a few of them, but they always start the first chapter with, um, uh, with this concept, a nation of immigrants, uh, the liberal textbooks. So what it does is wipe out the reality of up until the Irish came, uh, the first 50 years of, of U.S. existence, it was a, a completely a settler state. And these old settlers, um, Anglo, Welsh, Scottish, Scots-Irish, but they were the colonizers of Northern Ireland. They're Scots, but they're called Scots-Irish, Ulster Scots. Um, these are the real Americans. And I'll take that up to, you know, where the people marching today, uh, most of the evangelicals, Protestant and Catholicism has been completely Americanized. I tell about, I have a chapter in the book about the the, you know, the Americanization of Catholicism. It wasn't easy for Catholics. It was, you know, very hard, but they had to become racist for one thing. Anti-Black racism is, you know, the price of the ticket, as James Baldwin says, uh, to be an American. And um, so it's a, you know, it's a, quite a privilege then to be, so they're among the most patriotic 
and grateful for being, um, uh, uh, you know, leaving pogroms in Europe, the Jewish people, uh, starvation in Italy, uh, droughts. Uh, the, you know, they, they saw this as, uh, as um, the promised land. And so then this, this thing covers up, uh, still today really covers up the essence of the United States as a settler colonial state where every single president before um, Kennedy had been uh, from these old settlers. So they, they have made a comeback in the last few years with a multicultural, multi-ethnic country that the United States has become. We call it a white backlash or white nationalism, but it's really the settler class that's, you know, and others who kind of pretend to be, well, no, I didn't come on the Mayflower, but I came really soon after, 100 years after that. <laughs> so this is, and I know it well, my father's family is from that, you know, it's Scots-Irish, so I know the, the mentality of feeling your, you know, your, from the original people, there's a certain amount until you learn the truth, you know, it can really, even if you're dirt poor, you can feel like you're a very, um, you know, very privileged and superior person in the country. So that's, you know, that's um, um, one thing, but the difference between a settler and an immigrant, it, it might, and not be immediately clear that it really, the Irish refugees who came were the first non-settlers, that is people who came and made things throughout the colonial period, the 150 years, and then the first um, 60 years of US um, independence. These were people creating a nation state and a, um, you know, and a, uh, you might say, a, a program of conquest of the continent. And so by the time they came in the late uh, 1840s, the Mexican War was ending. So half of Mexico was taken. In other words, the continental space that exists today um, was put in place. So these people, the Irish, but all, especially the Eastern Europeans and Southern Italians and the Chinese, of course, came um, into an already made place. It's already finished. So that's what an immigrant is. The settler are those who were building what it is. An immigrant comes anywhere in the world. You go to another country you have to adjust to those rules, those laws, those practices, learn the language and be a part of it. That's just required. Um, so in the United States though, unlike other, most other countries, I mean, there's some Canada, uh, New Zealand uh, and uh, Australia, uh, to some extent, South Africa or Argentina, where the, um, uh, where the settlers remained the, you know, the, the, the majority. 
um, or the most powerful is in South Africa. This, this then, you know, the, this, they have the same relationships, but the difference with the United States is the size of its territory, for one thing, the wealth of the resources, and, and the looting, you know, the total destruction, almost total, well, certainly the destruction of, of the indigenous land base. And then, of course, within that nation of immigrants, certainly enslaved Africans do not fit within that category. They're really actually more the true original uh, settlers, only they were not, you know, it was not voluntary. So that those are some of the, you know, the distinctions that I think that are get are completely left out of textbooks. And I think in writing this book, I really, you know, because I, I grew up with immigrants around me, they were German, Czech, and uh, Polish. Uh, but they were, you know, Catholic, most of them were Catholic, a lot of Irish as well. And we definitely felt superior. We were very poor. My dad was a sharecropper. And yet we had, and some of those German farmers and Polish, they had land, you know, they had wheat fields. They, they were well off, you know. Hmm. And, and yet we felt very, people like me, you know, um, my family felt, you know, this sort of royalty. It's a kind of sense of royalty a sort of faded royalty or, you know, a, a, a penniless barons and so forth. That's the attitude. And I think it's not something people understand well, even people who are in that position like me. I mean, I didn't understand it until I did, you know, because <laughs> it's not very pleasant, you know, to identify with when you realize that it's, you know, completely a false a false uh, sense of humanity. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I relate my father's side of the family. He, uh, you know, German Irish background, uh, emigrate, you know, his, both of his parents, or I believe his mother, uh, emigrated from Ireland. And then I think his father was a couple of generations, but same kind of mentality though. There is, was even though he, he grew up poor, you know, uh, there there was a sense, even just ethnically, like that there is this superiority that comes with being able to be in the United States. And, you know, he can't he has all there's all sorts of prejudices of certain ethnic groups in, you know, in, in Germany, Ireland or in just that broader European region. And it was always it always seemed like it came from that place. And then on my mother's side, Vietnamese, I mean, her her whole family, you know, came over here in a wartime conditions, you yeah. know, uh, and uh, uh, there is that built in sense of like, okay, well, the imperialists, you know, master, they, they, they saved certain groups and they, there is this ideology. I think that comes with that when there is that relationship of, uh, of, uh, of loyalty that's built into the American a colonial project it, it definitely makes it even difficult to talk about something like imperialism which i would love you talk a lot about in your book um and how central its role is and that's and, and i really uh, think that's just incredible because immigration and imperialism rarely talked about together could you talk a little bit about how you believe 
you know, the U.S.'s colonial project and its imperialist project. Like how did how has that influenced things? You have a whole chapter on yellow peril, on continental imperialism, how, it, you know, the certain groups ta are targeted, spoken about, dehumanized in certain ways. Uh, could you speak more a, a bit about that? Yeah, the you know I think uh, the the bottom line for immigrants is to that they they're not black, you know. So how can I get as close to whiteness as possible? And that was almost impossible for for Asians, which were mostly Chinese in the nineteenth century, uh, who were recruited, you know, by the railroads. They went to China and brought back boatloads full of um, very poor people, you know, who there were terrible droughts. The Western powers had uh, imposed uh, the opium wars and it was chaotic. Uh, it was people starving, um, droughts and epidemics and horrible, horrible conditions, much of it created by, by Western imperialism. And there are people desperate to leave. So they're recruited at the same time there are laws, especially in California, where they brought them to for the goal for, you know, to begin the railroads from here. And for the gold rush, um, they, uh, they were stigmatized from the very beginning. And in 1884, the very first immigration law of the United States was Chinese exclusion, to exclude all Chinese. So all the Chinese who were building the railroads and all were simply uh, non-entities. They had no citizenship, no path to citizenship, no papers. They were literally without any kind of power, uh, at, even at the lowest level, you know, of the poorest of the poor people in the country. Um, it wasn't exactly like being under, under, it was somewhat like being under Jim Crow for African-Americans after the end of slavery. Of, of, uh, but it was... You know, at least they they had English. You know, they had and they had rights that were not being respected. It was illegal, but with the Asian immigration, uh, the Chinese, it was um, there was just nothing. You know, nothing at all. So it made them very vulnerable. They had to work very very cheap. Um, those railroads were built on their backs and. Um, uh, made huge fortunes for, you know, that built this city of San Francisco, you know, the, the five big, uh, big, the big six, I guess they were, uh, the railroad barons. So that was, you know, um, the first immigration law was exclusion. And then, um, well, then there was a second one, which included all Asians, not just Chinese. And then in 1923-24, simply a, an exclusion of every, everyone, just quotas, very low quotas for any immigration that wasn't Western European. Uh, so this was after the, you know, Southern European, Southern Italians and the uh, Eastern uh, Europeans 
had come, but they sort of got in under the, you know, under the uh, um, fence, and then it closed down until literally until JFK, uh, until Kennedy's um, immigration opened up, you know, larger uh, quotas and and to the rest of the world, Latin America and all. So everyone who was coming, and they were still coming, you know, Mexican workers were like uh, indentured servants. You know, they were they were um, uh, they they were um, literally in, indentured. They they had to come on co- labor contracts and then leave which was very good for the growers, you know, the agricultural, industrial agriculture out here in California in the Southwest, uh, because when the crops weren't coming in, you know, until they were needed, uh, they were sent back. So the growers didn't have to sustain sustain them, feed them, you know, or, or pay them or anything. They were really not even allowed in the city limits in cities, they were uh, discriminated against if they didn't get back to Mexico. And then they were deported all the time to, you know, deportations. So that was, you know, um, that horrible experience of, um, uh, of the Mexican people from basically 1920 to, uh, to um, uh, the present and still today, because like 23 of those, um, those people who um, were, were uh, died in the, you know, in the, um, in the truck were Mexican and mm. there's still, you know, still Mexican migration that is uh, illegal. It's just simply impossible to come into the United States today unless you're a wealthy European or Australian, or to see it white, in other words, it's, um, and it, it doesn't really change, you know, when I was looking at different administrations, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, it's pretty much the same. It's the first thought is exclusion, how do we do that? And then how do we get exactly the people we need to say, work in the uh, Silicon Valley, that's a big thing. They come on, you know, contract, they're really contract workers. I worked in Silicon Valley in early stage making uh, silicone wafers in a factory, Fairchild. And almost all the workers in there were, you can call them immigrants because they were on um, special visas to work. And they sent their money home to their families. They were Filipino, they were Mexican. Uh, They sent their money home, a lot of Asians too, but they had literally no rights. You know, in the book, you mention that remittances back to countries of origin uh, of uh, migrants, immigrants, uh, actually, uh, are well above the total number the total number of uh, so-called U.S. aid abroad uh, to the countries that are, you know, that are affected and and where the United States is really spurring this kind of migration. So, I mean, I suspected that would be the case, but I didn't actually know that that was a hundred percent the case. And so, 
you know, I think it just speaks to exactly everything that you're saying. I know we don't have a lot of time, so I do want to ask you about Alexander Hamilton because I feel like this is very much. I mean, it's it, you begin the book with Alexander Hamilton. I know I include we included it in our book on American exceptionalism because the play Hamilton at that time I feel like was even more talked about right around the, around the 2018-19 period. And Alexander Hamilton is framed as, I guess you could say, by liberals as an immigrant, as someone who is now being rehabilitated. I mean, we have Democrats rehabilitating people like George W. Bush. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that they rehabilitate someone like Alexander Hamilton. But you <laughs> you have a really, I think, a great and I mean, the, the chapter, it's just a great way to begin. Could you talk about Alexander Hamilton uh, that narrative, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, why you decided to uh, also open with it, I think is an interesting place to start. So for our last well, question, we have to go. So it, it, it's really why I decided to write the book. Uh, my editor at Beacon Press had uh, suggested that I write the book, but um, I when Hamilton came out and when all the, you know, the glory and uh, just, just incredible outpouring of um, of uh, popularity of that. I, I think there's never been anything like it on Broadway, and it's still going strong. You know, two hundred dollars a ticket minimum. Uh, it's it, and it's been made into a movie and everything. And I was so outraged that Alexander Hamilton was called an immigrant. And I hope people don't understand what's the difference between a settler and immigrant. There was no such thing as an immigrant at the point that the United States was founded. And he came to the New York colony. So for him to go from the Car a Caribbean British colony to a New York colony would be like any one of us, for me, let's say to, uh, moved to, or what I did, moved from Oklahoma to California to go to college. Because these colonies, you were a citizen of the British Empire, you could move anywhere you wanted if you were white, you were white Brit, anywhere you wanted to any of these colonies as you wished. There was no immigration. First of all, there was no immigration laws at the time at all. And uh, they didn't really let anyone in who wasn't, uh, you know, who wanted to come even, um, who wasn't Scotch, Irish, or, um, or Anglo, and wanted to try to be a slave owner, you know, make a lot of money. So there was no, you know, no one was breaking down the doors to come to the new United States. But he came to the colony, you know, and he to go to Columbia University and some very wealthy, he was an orphan, he had been orphaned by his, his, uh, his parents died. A lot of people died in the Caribbean. I mean, they died quite a lot, you know, from diseases. So it wasn't unusual, but he was taken in by, you know, a wealthy person trained in accounting and then sent to his way paid and his tuition paid at Columbia University. And so that is not immigration and it was the twisting of it. And the fact that Lin-Manuel uh, himself was, is a colonized person in Puerto Rico. It's a colony of the United States. 
he calls himself an immigrant because he moved from the colony of Puerto Rico to the United States. But Puerto Ricans have been citizens of the United States since 1913. So it's such a People take this as real history. There are, you know, the, the, he provided funds for textbooks, for lesson studies. He brought high school and junior high and elementary students free, you know, to his shows all over the country. And it's now built into, burnt into the curriculum that this is the history that children are getting today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it's it's certainly troubling, but I think your book provides a really good antidote to what, in my estimation, is propaganda. I mean, it's just, it is all about revising history in a way that, that sir, I mean, the, 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 also, maybe you have a minute left. Talk if you could talk about multiculturalism and diversity, because we talk about this in our book, and I feel like this it all has to do, you know, it all comes from kind of the same place. This kind of like rehabilitation of the empire of colonialism to erase history and also erase the reality of that indigenous people are going through oppressed people working. It, I feel like there's an erasure going on with these narratives and it's, and it's on the liberal side of things. Cause it, could you speak to that as your closing thoughts before we go? Yeah. And we can, we can go a little bit more if you want to, if oh, you okay. have a couple of other questions. That, yeah, I mean, I, sure. I'm not rushing <laughs> off. Of <this> <laughs> time. Um, yeah. The, um, uh, it's 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 really a the you know multiculturalism is really problematic. Uh, it was a, a democratic uh, thing that it, I I put it this way. Actually, I got this from one of my mentors, Jack Forbes, um, that what people were demanding in the nineteen sixties what. African-Americans, Native Americans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, uh, Asian-Americans, Vietnamese, uh, uh, Chinese, Japanese. <clears throat> All of these people were demanding that the education system address their reality and not just be this whitewashed Anglo-Saxon history of the United States, which... Most people living today, well, I probably people my age, did use those t books. That's what we had in school and even in, in university. Um, pretty much, you know, just, just the, the, that story. And um, history was taught mainly as patriotism, you know, civics. And it was even, you know, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was one of the most important uh, influences, a Harvard professor on uh, how history got taught, he said it should be taught as civics, how to be patriotic, even at the university level. So that's, this is then, uh, you know, the, the Black Freedom Movement 
And all these movements that came in the 1960s, the anti-war movement, anti-colonial movement, um, that, you know, uh, being Cuba's independence had a big effect on those of us who were um, coming of age and uh, uh, we wanted to know more about it. We wanted to visit there and it was barred. Uh, so these exciting things, plus especially the Vietnamese resistance, um, politicized and informed so many of us. We really learned. Um, and then, of course, the Black Freedom Movement is teaching us about uh, uh, racism, uh, how it works, uh, how Africa is, is uh, demonized. This is when the colonial movements of, of uh, liberation movements were going on in Africa. And we all were very excited about Angola and, of course, the anti-apartheid in South Africa. And um, so it was really a, you know, they, there were no boundaries that could be built with, you know, with television, even if it was slanted. Uh, basically, they didn't have many tricks at that time, and they just showed things going on around the world. You know, I remember showing, uh, I was so inspired by seeing all these African in their in their traditional clothing entering the united nations as new nations you know it was just it was so beautiful to to see this happening and of course tv got to be you know more, not censored from the government but you know self uh self-censored uh that you didn't want to be thought to be communist, you know, or red, because we came out of the red scare of the 1950s. And it was very strong still in the 1960s. But some of us would just say, well, hell, you know, if that's so bad, and you're so, so uh, doing such horrible things, I think I'd rather be communist. You know? <laughs> so we, we just, you know, we refuse to be baited by it, like our the generation before us who were terrified. I mean, they lost their jobs. They were, they were forced out of the country even, you know, tenured professors. So of course they were terrified, but their children were not so, <laughs> so afraid. So that, you know, that was such a liberating time. And the way Jack Forbes put it is that we were all demanding an anti-colonial revolution in this country, that this is a colonizing country itself. And that um, we had this kind of rainbow idea, the rainbow coalition that, well, Jesse, Jesse Jackson, um, you know, popularized it, but it existed earlier on in the late sixties and this came out of Chicago um, the Black Panthers, uh, the American Indian Movement, uh, the Chicano Movement, the Brown Berets, uh, the Puerto Rican Young Lords. So, yes, they were each specific, but learning from each other and respecting each other's reality, but also as a unit, you know, as a people. And what the system did, you know, the edu educational system, I think this is very troubling uh, to, you know, the white professors. Uh, they, they could kind of see down the line that, you know, they were going to become maybe a minority <laughs> or, 
or certainly not an overwhelming majority. And these people were going to college, you know, they're going to university. And so they introduced this idea of multiculturalism as rather than anti-colonialism. You know, they, they stripped it out and kind of successfully in some ways created these sort of uh, tubes of identi identity politics. I mean, the identity was there, but it was also interwoven and then it got broken down into a kind of, and especially at the university level by, you know, black studies. And I know I was very excited about um, uh, ethnic studies. I mean, it came to be called that, the sort of anti-colonial, but I came out of that, you know, radicalism and then, you know, went back and finished my PhD that I had abandoned to be a full-time activist. And I was very excited about building that, but the one we built at, you know, a little state university here in California uh, that I was a part of, we built it on the basis of um, a unit of all of us, you know. We had our separate courses, but we also had half of our courses were inclusive of and were anti-colonial. But as time went on and as funding developed, uh, you know, for these things, um, and, and radicalism was sort of, you know, especially at the end of the Vietnam War, which had brought so many people into this movement, opposing it and learning as they came in about all these other issues around the world, about Palestine and everything. So it started, you know, they, it, it really got distorted. I think our little program continued pretty well on the path, but most of them became very specific and then in competition with each other for funding, you know, for recruitment and getting enough students and so forth. So multiculturalism then became a, like uh, books came out where Native Americans were always uh, put as the first immigrants, you know, coming over the Bering Straits 20,000 years ago. <laughs> and that was only some of them. They left out the ones going crisscrossing the Pacific, you know. Right. Uh, so it, it, it was a, it was a, um, a, a kind of, I mean, it, it still is really, uh, we haven't really gotten back to, I think we have in the last few years really led by, um, you know, black, uh, black people uh, certainly identified with Africa and brought African studies in. Uh, and Native people brought, you know, indigenous studies in from, you know, the rest of, of the Americas and the Pacific, you know, Hawaiian, um, Samoan Islanders. And, but I think this, uh, the Red Nation and, well, AIM itself so identified with colonialism, especially with Palestine. And it was so much alike that I think they really led the move toward decolonization rather than multiculturalism. But it's still sort of the edge, not the, you know, the main course of uh, multiculturalism still holds the, 
a kind of strong, uh, that was like Lynn manuel That was multiculturalism mm -hmm. on the big scale, you know. Yeah, yeah, huge emphasis. I mean, Hamilton is kind of like this inclusion on, it's almost like on steroids because it was like putting, it was like putting black people in the roles of the colonizers slave owners. Slavers, slave owners. And no slaves, <laughs> no slaves in the thing. And then a lot of like semi, you know, I mean, we don't even have to get into the pop culture critique of like pop music, rap music, trying to put them all together. Like, there was all sorts of weird, strange attempts to pander yeah. to basically everyone they could who would consume such a thing. Uh, but it, it, you know, it was effective. And I think your your book is important because it, it counters your work um, on this is very important. Um, and Ishmael Reed, who has a, a great critique of this as well, you know, uh, very few voices, though, speaking up about especially this issue of multiculturalism, diversity because it 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 gets it becomes very sensitive in the absence of those movements that you spoke about right in the absence of a real anti-colonial strong anti-colonial movement like what existed uh just you know two two or so generations ago but you know i want to just pivot and then you know we we can stop here i know i know you got a busy schedule so i want to just uh maybe close you know you in your book, you put together a lot of different things. You put together the question of imperialism, the United States and the West and what they did to in uh, their role in producing immigration and also uh, how it extends to the question of indigenous people, like how it relates, how it and also how indigenous people are erased and, and oftentimes seen as excluded from these questions in a way that uh, really just uh, reproduces their erasure. And I think that's, that, that, that's very important. So you, you tie in all the work that you've done on settler colonialism, indigenous people and their struggles for self-determination with the question of imperialism. And also you get into, uh, because this is often separated to the, the condition of slaves, of Africans who were enslaved and how that fits in. And as well as how immigrants who came from countries like Ireland and Italy, how how they fit into all of this. And you have this term arrivance that you use, uh, that you derive from others' work to talk about the, the distinctions between immigrant groups, African slaves, black people who are enslaved in this country and then brought here. Uh, and also and then indigenous people who have their own particular histories and relationship to colonialism. What what is the thread here though? Because I think your book really speaks to the need for solidarity and to kind of transcend what are narratives that divide up oppressed peoples. Um, what, what do you think is the thread that will help develop that solidarity through? And how does your work speak to that? And we can end here because I think um, you know this is something I think about very very frequently, given how the United States has so many contradictions. Yeah, you know, in the in the conclusion of that book, I <clears throat> I really uh, express a plea uh, to um, immigrants, especially uh, you know, first new immigrants who come. Um, many now from Africa, Asia, of course, Latin, 
lot from Latin America and Caribbean, uh, when at one time it was mainly Mexican uh, presence uh, in the United States, that, uh, <clears throat> that they understand what they're getting into um, because there's so much um, U.S. propaganda and of course the movie industry and everything that um, there's a <clears throat> misconception about the United States and freedom and all. Because although some people think they know the history and they have to take a citizenship test, but that test is, you know, really, really uh, a standard kind of erasure of uh, uh, slavery and <coughs> colonialism. <coughs> and indigenous peoples. So what I ask of immigrants is that they do not become settlers, that they can resist becoming settlers. And I learned that <coughs> from Harsha Walla, who's a child of immigrants, South Asian immigrants in Canada, who started a great organization called No One is Illegal. And um, her latest book is on the on the border, actually, uh, uh, the U.S. Mex uh, U.S. Mexico border. That she brings together. There's so many uh, immigrants from Asia, Africa, and Latin America in Canada. They're more open to multicultural immigration, uh, but of course, they also, you know, just like here, are expected to. Um, assimilate into what is and they um, what she does and her team and they built chapters all over Canada of no one is illegal I wish they'd come here where they actually educate the new immigrants they literally go to the planes and you know not boats so much anymore it's mostly coming by airplane that uh, and and nab people and you know and they had they as she invited me to one of their conferences uh, a few years ago and i was just blown away this huge space just filled with mostly people of color from around the world i mean there were some irish and some english some germans but it was mainly people of color and young uh young people of color and up in front uh facing them were the uh, Northwest, this is in Vancouver, uh, the Northwest uh, chiefs of the native people of, of Vancouver, you know, the, the whole coast, the Coast Salish people, facing them and teaching them, you know, how not to become immigrants. Um, I mean, not to become settlers and to fight against it. So they have a really, really strong um, force, you know, in educating people about the indigenous people. Of course, they have speakers come in, you know, it's not hard, just so all kinds of activism, indigenous activism in Canada. And we don't have anything like that here. Um, the disparity is so much greater. Uh, Canada's different. It has, I mean, it, it is just as oppressive, just as genocidal in its history. It's not a big power, which of course it's NATO. It's, you know, the government is, but 
90% of the, of the uh, people, non-Indigenous people, live within 100 miles of the border from Pacific to Ocean. The rest of it is Indian country, all the way up to the Arctic Circle and to Greenland and to, you know. So, and they're oppressed, but they also have won so much because they had, no one wants to live in the Arctic, subarctic. <laughs> they want to be a little bit warmer down, down south. So they have this advantage. I mean, there are plenty, of course, that come and work and live in the, uh, in the cities, plenty of Native people and also who are indigenous of that area like the Haudenosaunee and, and, uh, and a lot of the Coast Salish people. Uh, but they have, you know, they have this disparity. So they're a greater percentage of the population and they have a massive land base that they've won title to, uh, especially the Inuit and the Dene. We don't have anything like that. Plus they, you know, this disparity of, of, of power uh, and the loss, the, the, so much loss of land and not a, a, a big swath of territory, you know, that really settlers don't want to go to at all. So they have, uh, we, they, they, they can advance things and have more, uh, they can get in parliament and actually have some effect and all, which can't really happen. I mean, we now have Deb Holland, who's a wonderful person. She's amazing. She's a real grassroots Pueblo Indian from New Mexico. I was married to a Pueblo Indian. They are the most traditional and uh, determined of any people I've ever met in my life. Uh, and she's doing all she can as Department of Interior. But I think uh, it's very limited, you know, what one person can do. You can't expect her to work miracles. But um, I think she has also done, been just uh, tirelessly trying to educate people. And she's a very uh, convincing, you know, very, very good uh, um, presentation to people. And they don't feel threatened by her, but she just really tells it. She doesn't beat around the bush. She tells it like it is. So we won't have that for very long, probably, <laughs> you know, unfortunately couple more years maybe, but um, we're really going into such a dark time that I think we have to um, rev up our energies and our determination, uh, you know, to fight because we're really getting um, defeated <laughs> at, this point, at every level, mm. women, uh, immigrants, everyone, you know, it's, Black people, setbacks. I mean, here we had <clears throat> Black Lives Matter winning over the hearts and minds of the majority of the country. Now, two years later, just out of the picture. I mean, the boomerang was so big and so fast that right. it's, a, it's a very serious time that I think we yeah. should confront it as warriors and not sit back and say, oh, can't do anything about this. Yes, and it's all the more important as we are now in another July 4th weekend. And, and uh, I couldn't have thought of a 
better person to bring on here to talk about these uh, about, about all that you have been writing about. It's very important. You people who are on the stream definitely check out the book. Get the book. Uh, Not a nation of immigrants. Uh, get that book and. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Roxanne. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really yeah, thank thanks you. for coming on. Yeah, this was great. We'll uh, I hope it. that we can speak again as soon. Yeah, we'll do it again soon. I hope. Yeah, yeah. Let's come back together as uh, soon as soon as we can. And uh, yeah, take care. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks you for too. coming on again. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Bye. So that was a great interview. I'm still going to be on, guys. Do not leave. Continue to hit that like button. Continue to share the stream. Uh, please do stick around. Uh, like it, like it, like it. I didn't, there was a not, there weren't more as many people as I wanted to come to this. Uh, yesterday with Carlos Martinez, we had a great crowd. I, I'm guessing it's a Saturday. It's kind of late in the day on a Saturday, especially out here on the East Coast of the United States. But uh, nonetheless, I'm going to stay on with you probably for another 30, 40 minutes. Um, I got a few things I want to cover. Um, yeah, I've got a few things I want to cover. I also changed this. I don't know if you like this. I changed. I was hearing about the audio. Uh, some people were saying that my mic positionality was not good. So I decided to change it up a bit. And I don't know if it's better. People were saying that some that I was getting told that I was a bit quiet in an event. So let me know how I sound. I guess this mic, I was researching the mic. I never even researched the mic. I just got it based on a recommendation. Um, but with that said, yes, like the stream, share it, subscribe to the channel. I'm so glad I was able to talk to Roxanne dunbar someone who has inspired so many, including myself. Uh, chapter two of our book on American exceptionalism was really just inspired by her work almost to uh, the 100% degree because she has this body of work that are really just primers on these key questions of history. And uh, uh, perhaps I should have her on about the gun control question because her book Loaded, although I have not read, I've read excerpts, I've read all of it, is probably is incredible history that we all need to know so yes and i also feel like so someone's so big teal said this looks profesh i also like the fact that i i feel my posture so much better right now because i don't have i feel like when it was below me i had to like kind of you know but with that said i uh, I want to talk now about a few things, a couple stories. Before I do, I just want to say, please do subscribe on Patreon. You know, this was, look, it's an inflation crisis. It's an economic crisis. I get it. I had reached my goal, right, on Patreon, and I was very happy. I knew it was going to be short-lived because I know every single month there's always people leaving. Uh, and this month, I think I lost, uh, yeah, more than $100 per month. So... I mean, that's a big hit, you know, so please do subscribe to Patreon, support this work. Um, yeah, I am now about $69 away from the goal again, so not terrible, but I definitely want to close that gap. I definitely want to just get to the goal and just stay there. But you know what? I might have to increase the goal because I think it'll take, you know, I think it'll take like 
Um, yeah, I think it'll take something like a couple hundred dollars over for me to just stay there. That's that's the problem with this gig economy work, just like any gig economy work. It's the problem of how, what they've done to us, you know, what they've done to journalists, anyone who speaks out against imperialism. And so, yeah. So when I meet the goal, I'm going to increase it again um, just because I'll, I'll, you know, I need that buffer. But nonetheless, do subscribe. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Please do subscribe. Patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Other ways to support me as well. Uh, but that's the primary way. So, yeah. With that said, I'll be on with you for another half hour. And then I may go on to Colin if you guys are interested in having kind of a more direct discussion about July 4th. I want to start on just it's another July 4th weekend, everybody. Independence Day. We should all be celebrating, right? And, you know, there will be some on the left, even the socialist left, who will say, and I'll get, I'm sure people get mad at me. They'll say, oh, well, yeah, we should celebrate the United States because... Uh, we should have pride in our country and we should be patriotic. There's somewhat of a trend toward that. And look, I think if you want to take the that approach with certain folks who may be extremely backward in their thinking, maybe in your uh, small, white, maybe more rural towns and whatnot, I guess that may be an approach. I haven't seen any evidence that it works, but you know, I'm not going to uh, certainly I'm not going to negate the strategy until I see it fail or work in person. Um, I've certainly never had it work for me. I've never even tried it because I think that uh, patriotism for the United States doesn't really convince anyone of anything. Most people are just already there and you have to mostly just approach people with facts. And usually that's what challenges people's sense of patriotism or loyalty or nationalism to the United States. I don't think that there's something inherently progressive about that. I don't think nationalism is one thing. I don't think you could say, oh, nationalism is always inherently progressive. It's not. There's many kinds. We learned this from the Black Panther Party. We even learned this from Vladimir Lenin. We learned this from revolutionaries of the past, that there isn't one kind of nationalism. There's bourgeois nationalism, reactionary nationalism, there's colonialism that has nationalist elements to it. And then there's revolutionary nationalism. There's anti-colonial nationalism. There's nationalism based on the right to self-determination for oppressed people. There's a difference. So on this July 4th weekend, I hope that we can have conversations about that difference, right? There's a difference between them. Um, and, you know, July 4th is another, it's like this day that commemorates the so-called founding of the United States, but really the United States wasn't founded for more than 10 years later. It was really the victory over the British Empire, which was, as Gerald Horn said, not a victory for anti-colonial revolutionary activity. It was a victory for slave owners and for colonizers. I mean, the British Empire was no angel, no one's saying that, but at the time the British Empire had to come to terms with some very delicate problems, one of which was that their Caribbean colonies were on fire. They were losing, you know, they were losing people. They were losing money, big amounts of money, based on the fact that there were massive slave rebellions, Antigua, Jamaica, you know, massive slave rebellions. And that influenced 
the British Empire to begin to move towards the end of the slave trade. And the colonialists in the 13 colonies did not like it. And I've had Gerald Horn on here talking about it more than uh, uh, last July 4th. So with that said, I want to pivot, though, because we can talk about July 4th all we want. I mean, my analysis is that July 4th is just another day, another day to celebrate the empire, the United States really induces this kind of reactionary patriotism into the population in order to get them to think about anything but their legitimate problems. Not really working in this time, though, because we just saw a poll uh, come out yesterday, leaked uh, to the Hill, saying that the Biden administration (laughs) is in real trouble. Seven to 10 people in the United States don't want the Biden administration to run again. So that's a pretty big deal. Right. Uh, I think that we've just seen over and over and over again over the last year, poll after poll after poll, say the Biden administration is in trouble. Joe Biden is in trouble. And I remember last year. During July 4th, the Biden administration was on Twitter saying, oh, well, your cookout food, whatever, the hot dog buns and the meat that you need to eat in your barbecues, all this nonsense will be 16 cents less. (laughs) I don't think they'll be saying that. Now, in an inflation crisis where consumer prices have gone up on average by nearly 9% and uh, by a lot more in some very key areas. So how things, how the tables have turned. But there's a story that I do want to talk about uh, that I guess you could relate to the whole colonial project and not just the American colonial project, but really the Western imperialist colonial project. That's centuries old now that, of course, is in a different stage. But nonetheless, the legacy remains very much with us and uh, the consequences are still being borne out in reality. And that is there was a story not too long ago, I would like to say a week or so ago about Patrice Lumumba. And so uh, you may not know that this isn't just July 4th weekend. This is Patrice Lumumba's birthday. And Patrice Lumumba, for those who don't know, he was the leader of the anti-colonial movement in the Congo, was elected as their first prime minister of an independent Congo, and served, I think, for a few years. And then he was assassinated in 1961. In It was Belgium in collaboration with the CIA and the British who coordinated his assassination with his enemies within the country. He was burned in acid. His body was burned in acid. And just within the last week, the Belgium colonizers, the imperialist Belgium state, returned his golden tooth. So I wanted to talk about that. I'm going to pull up a news story about it. And then I'm going to talk about, and then I'm going to pull up an article on his um, on his assassination, why it happened. And if we have time, we can talk about something else, but I'll just start here and then maybe we can go to Colin after. So here we go, guys. Here we go. Oh, what is this? Uh, Okay. Um, So here we go. All right. Belgium returns Lumumba tooth to relatives. I mean, this is a real headline. This is how absolutely disgusting the colonizers are. They are... 
literally returning a tooth. Not reparations, not any kind of economic and political support, reform, uh, no restitution, his tooth. I mean, this is absolutely disgusting. This is what imperialism is. This is what it does. So Belgium on Monday, this was Monday. What day was this written? See, yeah, 620. So this was a couple weeks ago. Belgium on Monday handed over the last remains of slain Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba a tooth to his family, turning a page on a grim chapter in its colonial past. Don't know what kind of page it's turning, but Chief Prosecutor Frederick Van Lu gave the relatives a small bright blue box containing the tooth in a televised ceremony and said legal action they had taken to receive the relic had delivered justice. The tooth was to be placed in a casket and flown to what today is the Democratic Republic of Congo, which celebrates Lumumba, who was murdered by separatists and Belgian mercenaries in 1961 as an anti-colonial hero. So Lumumba's son, Roland, said at a press conference in Brussels on Friday that the restitution would allow his family to finish their mourning. Oh, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate because there's still a lot to mourn given that there has been no real economic or political restitution for the crimes of colonialism that produced the assassination. But uh, nonetheless, this is kind of a common theme for uh, especially families of the slain uh, anti-colonial leaders. But to continue, a fiery critic of Belgium's rapacious rule, Lumumba became his country's first prime minister after he gained independent 1860s, but he fell out of out with the former colonial power, surprise, surprise, in the U.S. and the United States and was out, ousted in a coup a few months after taking office. He was ex executed on January 17, 1961, at just 35 years old in the southern region of Katanga with the support of Belgian mercenaries. His body was dissolved in acid and never found. But the tooth was, tooth was kept as a trophy by one of his killers, a Belgian police officer. I mean, this is just how disgusting colonialism is. His tooth was kept by a Belgian police officer. I mean, this is colonialism. This is imperialism. This is what it does. We don't even have to read the rest because I have a better article that I want to read. All right. With all of you. But I just want to give you the story. That's what happened a couple weeks ago. And it's just another, I mean, everything that we talked about with Roxanne dunbar this is a global imperialist, global colonial project. And the United States was involved in this. And so I want to get into an article in Pan-African Newswire written quite, I think written over a decade ago. But I like Pan-African Newswire. I've had Abeyomi Azakiwi, who is the founder of this uh, source. He reshared this from 2012. He reshared this, the authors on the bottom from Pan-Africa and Southern Times. So I'm just going to read quickly, just, sorry, got to adjust a little bit. Uh, I'm going to read quickly uh, what it says so we can get a little bit of a history about why he was assassinated. So why the West killed Lumumba. So this is 2012. So it said later this 2012, the Belgian parliament is due to report on the murder of Congo's first prime minister after independence, Patrice Lumumba, in January 1961. The circumstances of Lubumba's death have been shrouded in mystery for 40 years. But as the Congo's vast mineral wealth is once again becoming a focus for imperialist rivalries, documents long hidden in the official archives have been brought to light. Last year, the BBC ran two documentaries on the tragic history of the Central African state who killed Lumumba was screened as part of the channel's correspondent series. 
It drew on the forthcoming book by Belgian historian Ludo de Witt, The Murder of Lumumba. De Witt put his fa- together his facts from the case from Bel- official Belgian archives in the documentary, also used archival film footage and interviewed several witnesses to show that Lumumba was murdered in a plot masterminded by Western governments. Mobutu from the BBC's Storyville documentary series reveals how the Western powers put Joseph Sisi Siko Mobutu in power after the death of Lumumba, keeping him there for 32 years while he systematically looted the country. Mobutu became the West's Cold War ally in Africa, and the Congo formed the staging post for CIA operations against Soviet-backed African countries. The film reveals the very close personal political relationship that existed between Mobutu and several Western leaders. We see films, clips of Mobutu embraced by Jacques Chirac, the French president at the time, and sitting next to the British queen in the royal carriage. For many years, until he fell out of favor at the end of the Cold War, Mobutu remained a friend of the Belgian king, but his closest friends were George Bush Sr. and his family. Between 1885 and 1908, some 5 million people fell victim to King Leopold of Belgium's personal rule over the Congo under a barbarous system of forced labor and systemic terror. In 1959, the Belgian government finally decided to grant the Congo independence. The first election brought Patrice Lumumba to power as prime minister, but his government was an unstable coalition of regional interests and collapsed within a week. Who Killed Lumumba featured new material about the Katanga secession. Ludo de Witt has uncovered documents in the archives showing that Moise Tshombe, who led the secession, acted on orders from the Belgian government, which was always, which has always claimed that it only sent troops to Katanga to protect Belgian lives and property. De Witt's research shows that the Belgians plotted to dismember the Congo. U.S. documents released late last August revealed that President Eisenhower directly ordered the CIA to assassinate Lumumba. Minutes of an August 1960 National Security Council meeting confirmed that Eisenhower told CIA Chief Alan Dulles to eliminate Lumumba. The official note-taker, Robert A. Johnson, had shown or had told the Senate Intelligence Committee this in 1975, but no documentary evidence was previously available to back up his statement. Larry Devlin, the CIA's man in the Congo at the time, told the BBC filmmaker, how he had been told to meet Joe from Paris, who turned out to be the CIA's chief technical officer, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. I recognized him as we walked towards my car, recalled Devlin, but when he told me what they wanted done, I was totally taken aback. Gottlieb gave him a tube of poison toothpaste, which Devlin was a smuggle into Lumumba's bathroom. He claims he never did because I never had suggested assassination, nor did I believe it was advisable. Instead, I threw it in the Congo River when its usefulness had expired. The usefulness of the poison expired rather quickly because Lumumba was murdered very soon afterwards at the hands of Belgian agents. Eisenhower was not alone in coming to the conclusion that Lumumba must die. A British Foreign Office document in September 1960 notes the opinion of a top-ranking official who later became the head of the MI5 that, quote, I only see two possible solutions to the Lumumba problem. The first is a simple one of ensuring his removal from the scene by killing him, end quote. What steps, if any, were taken to put this plan into action remain unknown. DeWitt's work reveals the steps of the Belgian government to remove Lumumba. Belgian military chiefs made nightly visits to Mobutu, then head of the army and President Kasavubu, to plot Lumumba's downfall. Colonel Louis Maleri spoke 
of the millions of francs he brought over for this purpose. The plot to kill Lumumba was called Operation Barracuda and was run by the Belgian Minister for, for, for African Affairs, uh, Count uh, de Aspermont. The Belgian government ordered Kasavubu to sack Lumumba, who turned to the new parliament and won two votes of confidence. Mobutu then led a coup d'etat, and Lumumba was placed under house arrest, from which he escaped only to be captured by troops loyal to Mobutu. Contemporary film shows UN troops standing by while Lumumba was first beaten in front of Mobutu, then paraded through the streets of Leopoldville, and finally beaten again. Now Kinshasa. That's what Leopoldville was, it, it, is called now. When taken to Thaiville's prison, he almost provoked a mutiny among the guards. Count d'Espermont ordered him to be taken to Katanga province in certain death. On the flight there, he and two supporters, Maurice Mopolo and Joseph Okit, were beaten so badly the pilot complained the plane was in danger of crashing. All three were shot by a firing squad commanded by the Belgian officers and watched by Moise Shishombe. The Belgian commander of the Katanga police force, Gerard Sawote, was given the grisly job of destroying the bodies. Enlisting the support of a friend, they chopped up the corpses before dissolving them in acid. Sawote recalls that they were drunk for the two days because we did things an animal would not do. Both these films... Okay, so so that's the deal, okay? And here we go. Why was he killed? Why was the might of at least three Western powers bent on eliminating this one man, even as he was held prisoner, even as he was held prisoner, reviled, and beaten by his captors, and was without military or political power? Some say the answer is that he posed a threat to the West because he was a committed Pan-Africanist, and since his death, he has certainly taken on a status of a Pan-African martyr. By late 1959, Britain and America concluded, far from representing a threat, Pan-Africanism offered the best chance for preventing revolution in Africa. Pan-Africanists of much longer standing than Lumumba, such as Kwame Nkrumah, Kenyatta, Julius Nyeri, Obote, and, Az and Azikwe, had come to power around this time. The experience of the Congo, with its million-strong working class, its largest on the continent outside of South Africa, was a powerful factor in bringing them to that conclusion. He also had strikes and demonstrations breaking out in 1959 as the mineral boom ended. The Belgian government decided to grant its colony independence. Their oppressive apparatus was geared towards brutalizing a divided and dispersed rural population, not an increasingly well-organized working class that was losing its local and communal loyalties. When Lumumba showed that he could not be relied upon to control the Congolese working class, his fate was sealed. The West decided to make an example of him to the masses and to other African leaders to show what would happen if they opposed imperialist diktats. Mobutu, who had impressed the CIA on his brief visits to Brussels as Lumumba's secretary, was chosen as the better candidate to safeguard Western interests. Through a mixture of brutality and political guile, Mobutu succeeded in ensuring that the Congo, now, which was renamed Zaire and now is the Democratic Republic of Congo, did not become the flashpoint for an African socialist revolution. So that is... Um, that's why he was murdered. Patrice Lumumba was an inspiration. He was an anti-colonialist, a pan-Africanist. I mean, he was openly not communist, though. I mean, this is the thing about a lot of the African revolutionists. They weren't all communists. The anti-colonial movement had a diverse kind of political background. He, he did consider himself committed to the unity of the African continent and to sovereignty. And one of the things that really angered the United States, Belgium, British was that, and it wasn't really mentioned in the article, he decided that he was not going to take the imperialist side on the question of the Soviet Union. 
he was going to pursue economic ties with the Soviet Union and do so on the basis of having a sovereign and self-determined right to do so. And I believe that's likely what got him killed as well. Not just that he was an inspiration in the domestic sense, that his politics likely would have led, of course, to improve conditions for the people in the Congo, but also that there was this larger geopolitical, larger Cold War happening, and that a country as wealthy, a country like now the Democratic Republic of Congo that could feed all of humanity one, two, three, four, five generations over, given its massive mineral and agricultural wealth, a country like this being close to the Soviet Union would be an incredible boost for socialism, no matter how much Patrice Lumumba wanted to be neutral there. So that's, I think, part of this as well. Not really said in the article, but I think that we need to also understand that. And then also understand the contradictions because the Congo, as the article said, <laughs> Big Teal said, granting its colony independence. That was unfortunately how, oh, sorry, that was unfortunately how a lot of independence happened on the African continent. Of course, there was really heroic armed struggles we know about the anti-apartheid movement, uh, the struggle for independence of Algeria, for example. Yes, heroic armed liberation movements with sometimes a socialist orientation, sometimes a more of a nationalist orientation. But nonetheless, they were important. But a lot of the independence was actually nominally based in that because of the economic crises after World War II, because of the public relations crises of having colonies right for Europe and because they were now junior partners and the United States did not want to be framed as some sort of colonial power, a lot of independence was actually nominal, including the Congos. And so what you had, of course, was a divided military. Patrice Lumumba did not have control over the military and the imperialists used it against him. And so now we have this joke. It's a joke for the imperialist Western media to say that there was some kind of restitution with this tooth, right? This is just a blatant example of how the imperialists uh, have done the most disgusting and heinous crimes against any movement, any people fighting for liberation, fighting for real freedom and uh, it, it's a lesson that on this, it's July 4th weekend, but we have to understand that any real true independence for oppressed people, true sovereignty, self-determination, whether we're talking about colonized people in the United States, the respect for indigenous sovereignty and self-determination, whether we're talking about black self-determination and liberation, or we're talking about abroad, the self-determination of oppressed nations across Latin America, Africa, Asia. The United States does not follow any true independence. So we have to question, well, then what did American independence really mean? So on this July 4th, I hope that you all question that and you all bring that to the table at the cookouts, uh, wherever you're going to be, however you're going to spend time on that day to just bring up that contradiction because it, it does help spur, I think, investigation into the reality of history and the reality that we're living under now under U.S.-led 
imperialist rule. So I'll stay on for about 10 more minutes, but keep on liking the stream. Keep on hitting that subscribe button. I get it. It's Saturday. This isn't a big popular time uh, to stream. Uh, but, you know, I thought I would come on. I jumped at the opportunity to talk to Roxanne dunbar because, you know, that's just what you do when you have uh, someone like her willing uh, to give up some time. So keep liking the stream, sharing, subscribing to the channel if you haven't already. Also, you know, subscribe on Patreon if you're able, uh, you know, help me reach that goal so I can, you know, continue to sustain this work. So, you know, we talked a lot about bricks with Carlos and it's so interesting, right? There's one thing I want to talk to you about now with bricks, okay? And that is... Uh, there was a document released, okay, by the Global Times, an infographic, and I want to share it with you because, as I said before, the BRICS summit was blacked out. And I brought on Carlos, and he did a great job talking about the significance of BRICS. And uh, one thing that was hard to discern information from in relation to BRICS is the specifics of what they hope to do now after that summit. And so the Global Times and whatever people want to say about the Global Times, about Chinese media, if you want coverage of a certain issue like BRICS, you, you show me the Western media that's covering it. So we rely on Chinese media. And uh, to be fair, to be honest, I'm perfectly okay with that uh, because I, I don't have a problem. I think that actually Global Times and, and other Chinese media, so-called state-affiliated, I think they do good work on helping the West understand China. And uh, I would really call the task anyone who would read CGTN and Global Times and others who can point out the uh, discrepancy in reality that they think these uh, publications represent, right? That they're spreading some kind of Communist Party of China propaganda. I like to see the facts behind that because in my studies and my understanding of China and my visit there and meeting people from there, meeting people from the West who live there, I've seen a lot of the work they do confirmed, you know, I've seen a lot of it just confirmed reality. So let's go to this Global Times infographic on BRICS because this will show us what we can expect to happen after the BRICS summit that happened uh, 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 the last week of June or, or the third week of, to last week of June. So here it is. BRICS is to revitalize global development. Okay, that's what the theme is. And the editor's note is the impact of COVID-19 is still being felt. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has lasted more than 100 days. The globalization, globalization is increasingly going reverse. Unilateral sanctions and scientific and technological barriers are prevalent. All these have had serious impact on the economic and social development of emerging markets in developing countries. The world is facing challenges in achieving the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development with worsening food insecurity and poverty, widening north-south gap in development, and a growing global development deficit. Under these circumstances, the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which account for more than 40% of the world's population and about 25% of global GDP, are focusing on two major issues of development and security, 
in injecting stability and positive energy into international relations and becoming a positive and constructive force in today's international relations. So here is the, uh, the infographic. Let me zoom in a little bit more. All right, here we go. So here's the total GDP of the BRICS bilateral trade between China and other BRICS countries. You see in the billions of dollars, a combined $490 billion. Uh, you see here uh, the GDP and billions of US dollars of these countries, right? China's by far the biggest. Um, and then you have global development initiative that was put forward by Chinese President Xi Jinping at the general debate of the 76th session of the UN General Assembly in 2021. So eight key areas of focus here, okay? Poverty reduction, food security, COVID-19 and vaccines, financing for development, climate change, green development, industrialization, digital economy and connectivity. This is supported by 100 countries, 50 countries join the group of friends of the GDI, the Global Development Initiative. So that is how BRICS is going to uh, help spearhead things and create a positive uh, force in international relations. And so you have an initiative, a partnership on the industrial revolution formed to further cooperate on digitization, industrialization, innovation. In 2000, that was formed in 2018. And then in 2019, the partner work plan was adopted, including the establishment of BRICS industrial and science parks innovation centers, technology, business incubators, and enterprise networks. So that's interesting. And so the BRICS Partner Innovation Center launched in Xiamen, East China's Fujian in 2021. And now in 2022, the BRICS Partner Innovation Center signed a memorandum of understanding with the BRICS New Development Big. So you have really what they're calling a new industrial revolution being sponsored here. And this is very important for, of course, countries in the BRICS and those uh, that support and are aligned with the BRICS. These are countries incredibly poor and colonialism, imperialism, all the things we talked about with Roxanne Dombor-Ortiz are very much relevant here. So you have BRICS interconnectivity, okay? So you have the South African National Toll Road Strengthening Program and Improvement Program, the Assam Bridge Project uh, in India and the Guizhou uh, 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 rural roads improvement program. So you have these domestic infrastructure projects spearheaded by the BRICS countries. You have mutual exchange. You have cargo flight from Chongqing, China to New Delhi, Mumbai, India. So I had a call-in caller saying, well, what do we do about the political contradictions uh, of BRICS countries, right? Because there's a lot of tension between India and China, right? India politically is no friend of China and, no, and there's a lot of disputes, especially on the border. But look at that. I mean, look at the, there's cooperation happening economically. And I said that there are certain things that cannot be passed up and economic cooperation is one of them. So you have uh, uh, between China and Russia, uh, the Changjian, don't even make me say this, although Lenin is in there. I like that. Uh, Nisna Lenin Skoy cross border railway bridge. Whew. So there you have a, a railway bridge between China and Russia. You also have another border bridge highway here. So you you have these examples of what's happening between the BRICS countries. Uh, you have a more <laughs> BRIC cooperation, as they're calling it. So BRICS cooperation, climate change, offshore wind power project in Fujian, China which is worth 1 million tons of CO2 emissions per year. 
you have in Brazil, 600 megawatt electricity generation capacity in Brazil, which avoided 1 million tons of CO2 emissions. So you have public health cooperation, COVID prevention and control, China to Russia, materials, vaccines, drug research and development, treatment, China to South Africa, materials, vaccines, cooperative clinical trials on COVID-19 vaccines, China to Brazil, 100 million vaccines as of 2021, China to India, ventilators, oxygen, machines, drugs. So you have cooperation around COVID. And then BRICS Plus, which is a new phase in the development of BRICS to welcome more countries and enhance economic conditions in other emerging markets and developing countries. And I, and we were talking about Argentina and Iran joining. Okay. So this is all the stuff that's happening, guys. The Joint Committee on Space Cooperation and Aerospace was officially launched in May 2022 to enhance cooperation of BRICS member countries in remote sensing, satellite observation, and data sharing. And so, you know, lastly, Global Security Initiative. And this may... Uh, <laughs> This is going to get the imperialists really angry because whenever security is mentioned, it's like, oh, no, you know, the oppressed countries, the sovereign countries, the non-aligned countries, they're getting a little too, uh, they're, they're getting a little too, uh, yeah, how should I say, a, a, a little too emboldened. They want to defend themselves, right? They want to defend themselves. Why would they want to do that? They're the aggressors, right? China and Russia. Well, the BRICS countries are forming a global security initiative. So obviously South Africa, India, which is also a major power, right? Uh, they're, they're not so, South Africa, they're not so concerned about Russia and China's so-called aggression, right? They're coming up with a global security initiative, food security around food security, enhancing cooperation to help deal with the global food crisis, political security through this initiative, foster a new type of security that replaces confrontation, alliance, and a zero-sum approach with dialogue, partnership, and win-win results. And then cybersecurity, CyberBricks project to map existing regulations to identify best practices, develop policies suggested in the areas, suggestions in the areas of cybersecurity and personal data regulations, internet access policies, and digital transformation strategies. So you have security, You and that's it. That's the that's what they're doing. That's how BRICS is revitalizing global development. That's some of the specific initiatives that we couldn't really speak to uh, in our in our conversation yesterday. And I think that emphasis on peace, you know, opposing the zero sum approach, is probably the most important part of BRICS because all of the development really flows from that. And I think it's really big to have India in China despite having conflict with each other politically on certain issues, especially the border dispute, to be able to come around, come together around that message, I think speaks to a huge concern for imperialism, which is that these countries strike deals and start to work together in a way that leaves them in the dust. And we cannot hope for such a thing any sooner. We are really only going to benefit from such a reality and so I'm, I'm excited, and I think that with Iran and Argentina's uh, membership coming up, it's almost like this counterweight to Sweden and Finland and the reckless decision to join NATO. Uh, we are seeing really a divergence, and I, I think it's a, it's a really positive uh, development that BRICS is strengthening, and we can only benefit from it. So 
let's throw our anti-imperialist, our full solidarity to that project. And let's be sure that we, we are doing the work in the areas where the United States and its allies, its imperialist junior partners, are trying to undermine such a project. All right. That's kind of where we that's where we come in. That's where our role resides. And it means that we need wherever whatever struggle we're involved in, whether we're in independent media ourselves, whether we're involved in union work, whether we're involved in anti-war work, whatever it is, political education, wherever you fit, it's important that we're raising this very important development and taking it very seriously just as, as I said on the stream and on Colin, that we're taking the escalation of NATO very seriously. We have to look at both sides. That's dialectical materialism, looking at the contradictions and being able to understand them. And then, of course, uh, be part of the process of heightening and, and transforming those contradictions into uh, a new a set of contradictions, more amenable to us to humanity to our class interests and so that's all i got today folks in terms of content i wanted to go over a little bit about bricks i wanted to talk about patrice lumumba i didn't want to really belabor any of it i'm glad roxanne dunbar was able to stay with me for nearly an hour uh, she her work is incredible so definitely check out all of her work but i really do recommend uh, her new book uh, not a nation of immigrants Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Exclusion and Erasure. It's a really incredible project, very easy to read, and, and great for political education purposes, really. History, you get a whole, I mean, you get such a broad uh, sort of stroke of history around immigration, colonialism, around slavery, in, imperialism, yellow peril. We, you know, I want, we could talk about her book probably for hours and hours and hours. But with that said, everyone, uh, I will probably, it's 6.03, I will try to go on to call-in. You all have my call-in page. So if you want to join me on call-in, I think what I'm going to do, I'll put the link in of my call-in podcast page. You know, I'll probably go on there and just maybe take some calls in a half hour. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. I may, you know, I think I'm going to do this probably for, and then I'll go beyond 45 minutes to an hour. Um, you know, so I'll probably have a, like a July 4th conversation, right? Americanism, what does it all mean? Um, so join me there. You know, the channel has been growing quite nicely with all with some of the guests that I've had on. But, uh, you know, it's still kind of a slug. So I'm still going to do the call-in thing. Come uh, at around 630, I'll put up the event, Okay. So come for some direct conversation. Once I have the event, I'll share it around maybe to Telegram and other places. But, you know, it, um, yeah, just continue to do this work. Ooh, you, I just reminded myself I need to submit my article based on my remarks at an event. Um, so that will come out as well soon um, in Black Agenda Report. I'm going to submit that today. Got to remind myself to do that. Um on Taiwan and the makings of an Asian NATO. So yeah, come on to call in, share it around. I'll be putting up the events soon. But uh, with that said, everyone, thanks so much for coming. 
before you go, hit that like button, hit that uh, subscription button. Please uh, make sure that you're hitting the notifications bell so you're notified. And of course, the best way to support this work is on patreon.com slash Fong. A little bit of a setback, of course, uh, because it's the beginning of the month in terms of my goal. So I'm about $69 away. So anything any uh, per month. So any help that you can provide in that area is very much appreciated. And I'll be back on again. So I mm, probably we're looking at midweek next week. Um, you know, got a couple days where I'm just kind of just going to be... <laughs> Uh, hanging out, um, no streams from here, uh, where I am at, and then I'm going back to the city. So you might notice my background is a little different. That's because I'm in a more country-like environment, I'm in this cooperative cabin arrangement that my wife's family has had for generations, and uh, we might be here more frequently late summer, early fall, because there's construction next to our apartment that's going to start <laughs> August 15th. So if we don't do this, you may never see me on streams because at least in the afternoons because there's going to be a ridiculous amount of construction near right literally right next to our apartment building. It's just it's absolutely horrible. It was one of the worst parts of May to get that news. But um that's what it, is. it means to live in the city under capitalism, right? No respect for the quality of life of us working folk. So I might be here more often. I kind of like it. Uh, my wife's commuting back and forth from work. And I kind of like it out here. It's quiet. The acoustics are much better here. So, you know, um, I may be here oh no <laughs> say i need a good noise gate is there something wrong with the audio anyway yeah i need things for audio i'm probably speaking too loud into this right now i don't know but i'll be here um yeah i'll i'll be here probably a lot more so you might see this background maybe a little bit more um but yeah take care everyone be sure to like, subscribe, all that stuff. Take good care. Peace out.